uh, in the early 1500s, the Western world was about to go through a, uh, an incredible change. That is to say that for a thousand years, from about 500 to one, uh, 1500, what was going on was that from Russia to Portugal, the idea of a Christian Europe was what most people believed. It was viewed as the Christendom. But this, there began to be cracks that took place at the beginning of the 1500s. And one of the larger cracks came because of a Augustinian German monk named Martin Luther. Many of you have heard who Martin Luther was. And he begins writing uh, and corresponding with a Dutch scholar uh, named Desiderius Erasmus, his main rival. And it became very clear that uh, these two incredible minds were going back and forth in terms of talking about what was at the heart of Christianity. How do people get right with God? And in one of the letters that Luther writes to Erasmus, he says, you know, Erasmus, I'm really glad that we're writing to each other and that we're disagreeing um, on a major issue, on not something that's just minor, but a, a major issue. And that is how people are made right with God or the gospel. The gospel means good news. And this is at the heart of the book of Galatians. This is what Luther is, uh, this is what Paul is talking about. And Joe mentioned it. What he's talking about is there is this Roman province of Galatia. He had just gone there and planted churches, came back to Syria. And as soon as he got back to Syria, he was told that uh, somebody else has gone in and they've told these new Christians that there is there's something else that they have to do to make God happy with them. They have to eat certain foods. They have to celebrate certain days. They have to uh, physically be circumcised. And so Paul writes this letter. We saw last week that this is one of the first letters, if not the first letter written in the New Testament, written in 49 or 50 A.D. And he is writing and he is upset. He is mad. And so we look at verses just 6 to 9 today. And I want to divide that up by looking at four different things in, in these verses. First of all, what's at stake? Second of all, the, the shaky nature of the church. Why the gospel is rejected and the tragedy of turning away from the gospel. Okay. What's up with Paul? Why is he so angry? Well, like Luther, Paul is upset because of what's at stake. If you look at these three verses, the gospel is mentioned five times in these verses. It is at the heart of the argument. So much so that he says that if I come back to you, and Paul had created a lot of, did a lot of miracles there. If I come back to you, and I preach something else that I, that I wasn't preaching the first time, or if an angel comes down from heaven, the sky opens and the angel comes down and does all these miracles, and they're preaching another message, 
let, let me and let that angel be eternally damned in hell. That's pretty strong. And he says, to let you know that I am not just losing my temper here, after he says it a first time in verse number 7, he says it again. He says, if I preach another gospel, I'm saying it again so you don't think I'm just blowing a cork here. Let me be condemned. Now, one of the criticisms of the church, and maybe you're not a Christian here, and this is a criticism that you have of the church, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you have this criticism And the criticism is how divided the church is. I mean, you can't go down a block without seeing two different churches, the numerous denominations. And if you're not a Christian, you might think, well, if they can't get along, how in the world do they expect me to come into a church if the church is so divided? And how does Paul being angry square with what Jesus said in John 17, that my one prayer for the church is that they may all be one. And Paul is coming back, and he seems to be dividing the church. How does that work when Christ wants us all to be united? It doesn't make sense. But you see, there are differences between preferences. You know, there's people in this room that we disagree with, all of us perhaps disagree with, or few of us, on issues of, like, baptism, the, the mode of baptism. Uh, we have Democrats and we have Republicans in here. We have people who believe in speaking in tongues. We have people here who have a different idea of the style of worship that we should have. We have some people who have a bif- different view of the Eucharist. We have people who want less instruments or no instruments in the church. We have people that say you should dress a certain way. I mean, there are all these things that we differ on. And in fact, Paul in other places says that, yeah, you might disagree with me on some pretty important things, and that's okay. I mean, how how important things? On whether it's the right time to get married, Paul says, you might disagree with me on that. That's fine, but let me tell you what I think. You might disagree with whether we should be able to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Okay, we can disagree with that and be brothers and sisters in Christ. That's okay. In fact, in one church, the church of Philippi, Paul says, you know, there's some people that are preaching the gospel, and the reason that they're preaching is because they envy me. And they're mad at me. And he says, but that's okay. They're preaching the gospel. And so I'm going to rejoice because the gospel is being preached. As long as the gospel is not at stake, I will rejoice. But look how different Paul is here. Paul says, if they come in and preach something different, let them be eternally damned in hell. Because of what's at stake. You see, I could lose my finger, and that would really hurt. I could lose um, a toe, and that would really hurt. I could lose my arm, and that would hurt. But I could keep going. If I lose my heart, 
I can't keep going. And what is at stake in this book is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. That is what is at stake. Leads us to a second point here. Why is the church seemingly always in a shaky position? I mean, precarious. Always seems to be in jeopardy. I mean, these Galatians, they had seen Paul's um, miracles. They had heard his preaching. In, In fact, Paul says that the gospel came to you with great power. And I'm gone for a couple of weeks, and you've turned away from everything that you saw. Somebody came in, Paul says, evidently somebody has come in here, and everything that you believed, the gospel that came to you in power, the miracles that you saw me do, you've walked away from it. Luther writes a letter in 1535 or so, and he's writing about his church in Wittenberg, and he writes this. He says, everything right now is going really well in the church. We've got lots of uh, conversions and baptisms. Things are going swimmingly well. Lives are changing. Society is changing. The poor are being cared for. And then he ends by saying this. But one person, one man, one woman could come in and overturn everything that we've built up with the hard work of many years. Philanthropists will tell you it is very difficult to get people to leave estates to a church. If if you study philanthropy, it's hard to get people to leave money to a church, maybe a building, but not to a church. And you know why? Because people know I could give money to that church and in 20 years they're preaching something completely different. And so I'm not going to pour my money into that when I'm not sure. Listen to the original mottos of the following universities. Oxford University. This was the original emblem. The Lord is my light. Princeton University. Under the protection of God, she flourishes. Harvard University. For the glory of Christ. Duke University, started by the Methodists who were converted under the Wesleys. Knowledge and faith in Christ. Now, I've taught at some of those universities. And Christ is not mentioned at all. In fact, many of you may know that at Princeton University a few years ago, they invited a a man named Dr. Tim Keller who's in our denomination, to come and to give a lecture at Princeton. A special lecture. And the students rioted. And the faculty rioted. And they said, we can't bring this person in here. He believes the Bible. He believes Jesus rose from the dead. He believes that what the Bible says about sex and marriage is true. We can't have him come And they had to rescind the invitation to him because there was such an uproar. At Duke University, one of the most, I would say, anti-Christian universities in the United States, started by the Methodists. In 2009, um, they 
brought in a new university chaplain who is a Muslim. Of course, what is true of churches is true of individuals. We get so excited when celebrities become Christians, when sports stars become Christians, and sometimes they last a little while. We really look up to certain leaders in the church, and then they disappoint us. You don't have to be a Christian very long to figure this out. People come in, and they appear so excited about the gospel. Their lives were a train wreck, and all of a sudden they're excited because they're in the church, and uh, their lives are going to be turned around. And then their attendance starts to become a little bit more spotty. And this initial zeal, something happens to it. And then they just stop coming. I remember one experience I had of this when we were in Los Angeles. I had a friend who had walked away from the faith and had gotten mixed up in drugs and was an alcoholic. And he was just in his 20s. And he called me out of the blue and he said, Shelton, I'm coming to church Sunday. God has changed my life. And lo and behold, I, I was super excited about that. I was, I was great, fantastic, be, be so nice to see you. Not only did he come to church that Sunday, he went out and he got his father, he got his mother, he got his brother, he got his uncle. He brought the whole clan with him. His wife and his two beautiful daughters on fire for Christ. And I wish I hadn't been so naive back then. Because after a couple of months... It was every other Sunday, then once a month, and then he just walked away from faith and drank himself to death in his early 30s. I could, we could be here the rest of the afternoon, and I can tell you story after story after being an elder here for, for almost three decades. And you ask the question, well, how, how do you not get discouraged when that happens? How do you not get discouraged when people stop coming? Uh, we understand that we're in a cosmic battle here. That we're, we're fighting against forces that hate people to come and hear the good news on Sunday mornings. That do everything, does everything he can to keep you distracted from what the person up here is saying. There's this... There's a, they're fighting. It's a fight for your soul. We don't get discouraged because of the promises of Christ that he's going to use people like us, churches, institutions like us, and all the power of hell isn't going to be able to stop the church. I think I've told you before, it's G.K. Chesterton who said, you know, when I read church history, four times the church has gone to the dogs, and every time the dog died. And the church moves on. We don't get discouraged because Christ was abandoned, wasn't he? Thousands were following him one day. They all left the next. He was abandoned by his best friends. We don't get discouraged because what Christ wants and what we will want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful while you were down there. Third, why is the gospel rejected? The gospel means good news. Why would people walk away from good news? 
There are a lot of, lot of reasons. I'm just going to give us two. And I want to look at two arms of the Christian church. I want to look at the liberal arm, and I'm talking about the- theology here, not politics. We're going to look at the liberal arm of the Christian church, and then we're going to look at the conservative arm and why the liberals walk away. Remember, Galatians is written to Christians, right? So th- th- this, this book is for us. Let's look at the liberal arm, and then let's look at the conservative. Start with the liberals. You go into those churches, and a lot of them are mainline denominations, and hopefully you can find some people in there on Sunday mornings. And they'll say, you know, it's great to follow Jesus. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Great emphasis that Jesus had on caring for the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poor, the needy. We even like Paul because, I, especially 1 Corinthians 13, it just makes my heart beat. If, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, I'm a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. Yes, we like that. But don't say that Jesus is the only way. Don't, don't say that. Because, you see, I know so many good people who aren't Christians. And uh, surely God's not going to punish them at the end of the day. I mean, they're generous. They're doing good. They give you the shirt off their backs. And... They're good people, and God's going to accept these good people. So many people have come into my office and they've said that to me. You you certainly can't believe that only Christians are the ones who are going to be uh, saved at the end of time. And uh, it's... God's going to accept good people. And of course, when they're, say, they're saying that to me, they're assuming that they're a good person and I'm a good person, so we're in. So everything is copacetic. Everything's good. And they say things like, well, Dr. Woods, I know you care for your students. I think that you're a leader at your church. I, I know that you care for the poor. Certainly, God's going to accept you. And this is what I say except I say it a lot more diplomatically than I'm going to say it right now. How dare you presume to know my heart? How dare you think and dash all of my hopes that my relationship with Jesus Christ is based on my goodness? Because here, you don't know my thoughts. You don't know the people that I've hurt. You don't know the words and actions that I would give anything to take back. I say it more diplomatically than that. And then here's their response. Well, well, I, I said good people, not perfect people. Oh, so we're, we're moving the goalposts here, right? So all of a sudden the standard changes. You don't have to be perfect, but, but we're good people. What if God has a different standard than we do? What if God demands perfection? What then? Did you notice what Joe read earlier in Matthew 22, where this is the king, God saying, I want you to bring in the good people and what? Did you see it? 
and the bad people. You cannot find another religion that says that. I can tell you a religion that says you need to follow the eightfold path. We could be here all afternoon and I could talk to you about that eightfold path. And I can tell you about another religion that says you need to just follow the five pillars in this religion. You've got to be, you're in this faith, whether it's Mahayana, Theravada, Sunni, Shia, you're in this faith because you're good. And Jesus says, I want you to go and the bad people are in my kingdom. Okay. Now the theologically conservative, and that's us. You know, the gospel is news, not advice. You know that? Um, and, and, and what's the difference? News is something that has already happened. Advice is something I have to make happen. Listen to just this two-sentence quote from a uh, professor at Gordon-Conwell. In the day-to-day lives of conservative, again, the- theological Conservative Christians, they draw their assurance of acceptance by God from their sincerity, their past experience, and their recent religious performance. And we ask the question, is God pleased with me? And we think, well, let me, let me take an inventory. Let me look at the past week whether to know whether God loves me or not, whether he accepts me or not. You know, I'm going to say something controversial here. This is a controversial book. I'm not sure we see many more changed lives in the conservative arm of the Christian church as in the liberal arm. Maybe more disciplined lives. Maybe people that have a more robust, quiet time don't cuss very much, don't get drunk too often, Go to church, maybe even give money. But that's not a changed life. That's a disciplined life. That's sheer willpower. And the gospel is what God has done, not my sheer discipline. In verse number 7, it says that you have perverted the gospel. That word there, the Bible wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek. That word pervert means to, to kind of turn inside out, the opposite. Uh, very much like putting on a shirt backwards. Has anybody done that? Maybe too early in the morning and you walk around and two in the afternoon, you, oh my goodness, the label's out this way. I've put it on completely backwards. That's what it means to pervert. That's what Paul's saying. That's what's happening to you guys. They have turned things inside out. They're saying you have to be good and then you're in. You've got to do this for God to be happy with you. And you know people that have that idea? They're they're usually very angry people. That's why there's so many angry people who have a lot of uh, theological knowledge. They're angry They're very critical of other people. They have to criticize other people because they're doing better than the other people. They live in fear, fear whether God is accepting them or not. And this so easily creeps into the church. And Paul could smell it a million miles away because that's the way he was as a Pharisee. 
I mean, the Pharisees, they, they tithed even what was in their garden, even their herbs. They made sure everything was good. They were extremely disciplined, got up early in the morning, memorized scripture. But Paul said, I couldn't change my heart. I couldn't stop coveting. I couldn't stop hating people. And oftentimes what characterizes how this happens to us is that we start to have preferences as Christians. And then we go to the Bible and we look for something that agrees with our preferences and we find teachers that agree with our preferences. And then we, these preferences move to convictions and then they become calcified. And before you know it, we're congratulating ourselves for being in the right place at the right time in the right denomination and disdaining others. And the gospel is gone. And we just keep looking at what we're doing rather than what Christ has done. Which brings us to the last point. And that is the tragedy. The tragedy that the Galatians and most people who hear the message of Jesus, they don't accept it. It's a triple tragedy. Do you notice what Paul says in verse number six? I am astonished that you are deserting the one. You're not deserting me. You're not deserting the church. You're deserting the one. You're deserting Jesus. You're deserting a person. We're not when we move away from the good news, we're not moving away from a worldview and ideology. We're moving away from the one. Vocabulary fails me, as does my imagination and my rhetoric, to tell you how beautiful this one is, this Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says in another place that, for in Jesus all things were created, whether heaven and earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers, authority, all things were made and created through him and for him. He didn't need to take a copyright on the songs that he gives the birds to sing every day. He told the whales where they should go when they do their migration. He says to the sun, I want you to stay there and come up tomorrow. He is the beginning and the end. He is all beauty, all perfection, all truth, all reality. The only being who could fix this broken world. We cheat each other. We lie to each other. We lie to ourselves. We turn up our noses at each other. We're not afraid to disparage people different than us. And all the while, we justify our actions. I could go on and on. And then we have to die. And we have to live with this fear every day of our impending demise. The only person who could come in and fix this is this beautiful person, Jesus Christ. And how did he do it? He came into the womb of a peasant Jewish girl. Born in an obscure town, raised in a tiny village. This man that the Galatians were deserting, he went around doing good. He gave sight to the blind, to the lepers, he healed them. To the lame people, he allowed them to walk. 
to those who were burdened down. He said, come to me and I'll give you rest. One day he was being pressed on by hundreds and hundreds of people. And there's this woman that had been bleeding for 14 years and she touched Jesus. And she thought, maybe if I just touch him, um, maybe I'll be healed. And Jesus stopped the whole crowd and he said, somebody touched me. And his disciples got kind of upset at him. He said, the whole world's touching you. What do you mean somebody touched you? This beautiful man knows when you reach out and touch him. And how did he give us rest? One day he allowed a sapling tree to start coming up out of the ground. And he allowed that tree to grow. Then he allowed somebody to cut down that tree. He started it from a sapling. And then he allowed somebody to make a cross out of that tree. And then he made Roman soldiers. And those Roman soldiers beat him. And they put him on a cross to die because God demands perfection. And he took on the sins of the world. And he rose again. And when we ignore and pervert the gospel, we're abandoning that person. Who is this person? Paul says, I'm astonished that you are deserting the one who called you. He didn't just die for us. He called us. How often, how often do you think about that, that Jesus called you? i tell you this. If you think that you're doing good, you don't think about it very much. What you're more concerned about is, uh, how's my performance doing? But Paul says he called you. Go back and remember. Maybe it was a sermon you heard, somebody talking to you, somebody reading to you. He's the one that called us. And finally, by his grace. Why did he do this? Because he thought, because you're beautiful? Because you have a lot of money? Because you have a lot of talent? No. Out of sheer grace, it says in verse 6. There was only one time in his ministry that I can remember that it says that Jesus was astonished, just like Paul's astonished here. You can find it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. He was amazed and astonished because he went back to his hometown and he did miracles there. And many of you know this. It says he was amazed at their unbelief. He was astonished that they wouldn't believe. I'm not sure what more could be said to you about what the gospel is for you to stop trusting yourself to rest in the love that Christ has for you. These things that we say on Sunday morning, they're not cleverly devised fables. You can go back to the city where he was born. You can go to where he was raised. This is not this imaginary friend. Did any of you have an imaginary friend growing up? He's not an imaginary friend. He's somebody who says, come and learn about me and know me and walk with me. I know all about you. Let's have this relationship. And I can have this super close relationship with you. 
even though I have it with a billion other people, you're going to seem like, it's going to seem to you like you're the only person in the world and all my attention is on you because that's the kind of God that I am. That's the beautiful way that I am. And then he's coming again, this beautiful one from Nazareth. And he's not coming back as a helpless babe. His friend John got a vision of what Jesus looks like when he comes back. And it says that on his thigh, I don't know if it's a tattoo or if it's just ink, but it says on his thigh, there is this message written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's coming back and he's going to set everything straight. And he's going to say to me, and he's going to say to you, what did you do when I called you? How did you respond? Was I your king? Did you live for me? Because I'm here, the king has returned, and eternity begins. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that Paul told the Galatians, I'm, I'm so astonished. I'm so shocked that you're deserting the one, the beautiful one. And yet we confess that oftentimes we come on Sunday mornings to worship you and what we're most concerned about is um, are, are we doing everything right? Is, is, is everybody seeing things the way that we see things rather than resting in the gospel? God, if there's people here who don't know Jesus, who don't know this abundant life that he gives to us, this water that makes us never want to thirst again, Father, call them to yourself. Let them know there's forgiveness in you and a new life in Christ. And, and for Christians who are tired, help us to find our rest in the one who has called us by your grace, because we pray through Jesus' name. Amen.